On Sunday, the church celebrated Divine Mercy Sunday. I celebrated here at home with my kids. You can probably hear them on the background of this podcast. Whether you knew it or not, you are celebrating the 20th Divine Mercy Sunday. Pope St. John Paul II declared the feast in 2000. On the same day, he canonized the Polish nun who had visions of Jesus, St. Faustina Kowalska. St. Faustina painted the image of divine mercy that so many of us know and venerate today. This week on CNA Newsroom, we are talking about mercy. We'll start with the story of John Paul II and the time he made a plea for the life of a man on death row in Missouri. Then author and photographer Chris Arnaud talks about his book, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America and the personal journey of mercy behind it. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Stay with us. We are gathered here this evening to listen to Jesus as he speaks to us. Speaks to us through his words and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pope St. John Paul II arrived in St. Louis, Missouri on January 26, 1999. It was the last of his seven visits to the United States. You are children of the light. You belong to Christ and he has called you by name. Although the Pope only spent about 31 hours in total in Missouri, as you can imagine, planning a papal visit of any length is no mean feat. I said yes, and then the doors opened with uh, conversations with Rome, working with the White House, working with the Vice President's Office, uh, Secret Service, FBI, everybody you can imagine, even some people with acronyms of their offices that I never heard of before. This is Bishop Richard Sticka. Today, he leads the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. But back in 1999, he was a Monsignor in his native St. Louis, working at the vocations office and eventually serving as secretary to the archbishop. We always had hoped that the Pope would visit St. Louis. It was exciting. We started with me, and eventually we had 3,000 people involved in all the different committees. And it was a real eye-opening experience, but it was, it was a beautiful experience for me. The thing that made me the most nervous was the weather, because it, you know, so we had to have contingencies, and it was extraordinary about the uh, the visit about a week, week and a half before, probably a week, we had snow and ice in St. Louis, and when the Pope landed that day, that uh, first day, he came around two o'clock. It was 17 degrees or 68, and the following day, when we had the mass at the dome, it was 70 degrees, and a few days later, after he left. The weather turned back to winter. The Pope stayed in the Archbishop's residence, in Bishop Sticka's room, in fact. We just all came together. The President's office, Vice President's office, everybody was just FBI, Secret Service, everybody was just so extraordinary. The second day of the Pope's visit, the group was having breakfast at the Archbishop's residence, getting ready to head to the giant arena where the Pope would celebrate Mass. Now, this is about 8.30 in the morning. 
Cardinal Angelo Sedano, the Pope's Secretary of State, pulled Monsignor Sticca aside and asked him if he could arrange a meeting with the governor, Mel Carnahan. So that he would like to meet with the governor to talk about this uh, execution. A prisoner named Daryl Meese had originally been scheduled to die by lethal injection during the Pope's visit on January 27th. But the Missouri Supreme Court probably realized that executing a prisoner while the Pope was in town was a pretty bad look, so the justices moved his execution date to February 10th instead. And they never said one was correlated to the other, but what they did say, you know, that it was going to be postponed. And there was a little bit of uproar because people put two and two together, and, you know, the people who were, say, church, you know, uh, separation of church and state, religious leaders coming, they should still go ahead with our normal business and, and things like that. Obviously, it's not worth recounting all the details of Mises' crime. But suffice to say, in Bishop Sticka's words, he wasn't exactly a poster child for clemency. His crime was a grisly triple murder, and there really was no question about his guilt. Nevertheless, Bishop Sticka made the calls and arranged for the governor to come to the archbishop's residence that afternoon. It all worked out, and um, so the governor came to the residence um, and met with Cardinal Sedano. That time the Pope was resting, you know, because of his age and his disability. Um, and Cardinal Sedano presented the case, uh, the, the request that the Pope had made. And this was not the first request that the Pope had made. He had made others of other governors in the past via mail. Those previous requests hadn't worked. Still, the governor, a Baptist and a staunch supporter of the death penalty, listened politely to Cardinal Sedano and took his leave. Later that night, the Pope led evening prayer, Vespers, at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis. The governor and his wife were there, along with Vice President Al Gore, baseball star Mark McGuire, and civil rights leader Rosa Parks, among others. And after the prayer service, as we were processing out, uh, the Pope veered over to Governor Ca uh, Carnahan, and uh, I, I, I could remember vividly, he placed his, uh, his hand on Governor Carnahan's arm. The Pope then said something to the effect of, Mercy for Daryl Meese. And then they had a short conversation and then the Pope went down, you know, went back into the aisle and, and walked out to greet all the people in front of the cathedral and eventually left for the airport. The very next morning, on January 28th, Carnahan officially commuted Mises' sentence to life in prison. Everything was, for me was happening so fast, I didn't have time to, to really think about it until, you know, months later. He announced that because the Pope made this special request um, in person, uh, the governor uh, stayed the execution, and uh, and then Mr. Meese, the, the sentence was converted to life in prison without parole. A couple months later, Governor Carnahan came for dinner at the Archbishop's residence. He said it was a very difficult decision for him because um, you know, because of the sentence of, a, of the court and public pressure and his own conviction about the death penalty. Carnahan had already approved 26 executions since taking office in 1993. He was very pro-capital punishment 
as with so many people in the state. And he said when when he looked at the Pope face to face, and he remembered that the Pope himself had visited with the man who tried to kill him. Nearly 20 years before his visit to St. Louis, on May 13, 1981, a would-be assassin shot John Paul II in St. Peter's Square. The Pope, of course, survived, and when he was not even yet fully recovered, he met with the man who shot him, Mehmet Ali Akka, and forgave him. He said, you know, if the Pope would have asked for me to stay the execution of everyone on death row, I could not have done that. But he said... Um, and he received a lot of uh, negative, some negative press and a lot of, uh, and some people were angry. Uh, but he said, you know, he said, I couldn't say, couldn't say no. And he said, I prayed about it. I think Governor Carnahan was a Baptist. And he prayed about it and, and looking John Paul eyeball to eyeball, he decided to do this. Needless to say, this story doesn't have a fairy tale happy ending. As Bishop Sticka mentioned, Many people, including, as you might expect, friends of Mises' victims, were not at all happy with the decision to show him mercy. So, why the Pope's plea? The Pope, you know, in the Gospel of Life and in many of his talks, and from, probably from his own personal experience living in Poland and just seeing the atrocities of life and such, um, you know, he was a real witness uh, to the dignity of all human life. You know, John Paul... Uh, for a long time, especially with the encyclical on life, talked about no, there was no longer a need for capital punishment. It, you know, it had evolved, you know, Pope Francis is, uh, and Benedict and then now Pope Francis has really picked up on that. It was John Paul II himself who instituted Divine Mercy Sunday on April 30th, 2000, a little over a year after his visit to St. Louis. You know, John Paul really was the one who, um, um, you know, really pro- uh, proposed to the world the life of St. Faustina. St. Faustina was the Polish nun who wrote a diary chronicling apparitions of Jesus throughout her life. Jesus asked her to write down his messages of divine mercy in her diary and to share them with the whole world. In our new cathedral, we have a statue of St. Faustina and a nice image of divine mercy and uh, St. John Paul. Uh, created the diocese in 1988. Unfortunately, Governor Carnahan died in a plane crash a year after all this happened, in 2000. John Paul II died just a few years later, in 2005. And, as far as we know, Daryl Meese lives on in prison. There are a lot of people in the United States, Catholics included, that are still in favor of the death penalty. But, you know, John Paul in his Gospel for Life encyclical, and I said, the dignity of every human person. And I've seen stories of men who were on death row, are on death row, um, and maybe um, um, because of now DNA, they were released from prison because they were actually innocent. The death penalty is no longer necessary. It's a kind of a, a component from the past. Mercy is such a tremendous gift, and if you ever read the diary of St. Faustina, or, you know, if we just look in our own lives with the mercy of God, we're all sinners. And without mercy, where would this world be? Uh, Where, you know, nobody, everybody would have to walk away when Jesus, you know, always said, he is without sin, cast the first stone. John Paul 
you know, walk the walk, as they said. And, uh, you know, he was a man who gave testimony by his own witness to forgiving the, the man who tried to kill him, as well as asking mercy for other people as well. It was a beautiful act of someone requesting mercy for another person. And in this case, it was granted. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, my name is Mary Farrow, formerly Mary Rizak, but if you follow me on Twitter, at Mary Rizak Farrow, you probably know that I recently got married. When I'm hanging out with my super cool husband at home, we like to listen to CNA Newsroom because even though I work at CNA, it can be hard to keep track of all the news we cover. Plus, I love the inside look it gives me at the people and reporters behind the stories. I used to have an iPhone, and if I still did, I'd catch CNA Newsroom on iTunes. But now I have an Android, so I listen to CNA Newsroom on Stitcher or Google Podcasts. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts. And as a nonprofit Catholic journalist, the price of CNA Newsroom is always right. It's free. So pop online, hit subscribe, send us a stellar review, and let us know what topics you'd like to hear more about. And now back to the show. Late one night, a few years back, Chris Arnaud was sitting in a McDonald's in East LA. Chris had spent a lot of late nights at this particular McDonald's and at others like it across the country, documenting the lives and values of the people he had come to call Back Row America. Back Row America is made up of Americans who don't define themselves by their resumes or their education. People who come from communities that believed once in an American dream, a high school diploma and a lifelong job, a dream that, for the most part, is no longer there for them. That isn't a red state or blue state thing, that's true all across the country. It's, um, it's African-American communities um, in, in northern cities. It's, it's working-class rural communities in places like Iowa and Nebraska. Chris has been spending time in Back Row America for nearly eight years. He said McDonald's is a great place to meet people in the Back Row. A lot of people who don't have a lot of money spend a lot of time in McDonald's because it has free Wi-Fi. That particular night in East L.A., Chris wasn't alone in the McDonald's dining room. A young woman sat at another table. Chris had seen her there before, more than once. I knew exactly what she was doing. I would, do, I would be there each night to type up my notes. Um, and she was there because, you know, I've, I've seen her all over the country, variations of her. She was there to use the free Wi-Fi because she didn't have Wi-Fi at home. She, her family was too poor. Um, so she would come in every night with her with her Game Boy um, and her computer and charge both of them and, and play on the internet or do homework or mostly just play her Game Boy or her Switch or whatever she had. Eventually, the young woman got curious about Chris. She asked him where he was from. Chris was from a world away. Before he started this project on Back Row America, Chris worked as a bond trader on Wall Street. You can think of the movie, uh, The Big Short, I guess, or you can think of um, the book Liar's Poker, perhaps, or the, I guess there's a TV show called Billions now. 
Um, but that was me sitting at a desk in front of a wall of computers, trading bonds and, and, and betting on things. And I did that for 20 years and lived a very good life um, in New York City um, with my family. Chris was part of what he calls Front Row America. The elites, if you will, who um, have spent their career chasing, a re- building a resume, going to all the right institutions, and ultimately ending up probably in a few handful of neighborhoods across the United States where they, they generally have very large influences in academics, the media, and politics in the business world. Back when he was working on Wall Street to relieve stress, Chris would take these long walks through New York City on the weekends. Sometimes he'd walk the route of subway lines, but above ground. Other times he'd see where the day took him. Most weekends, he would walk as much as 25 miles. Those walks became, in some senses, they went from being just a way to relieve stress to being a way to learn and and see and, and meet people and hear the stories from people who I might not have otherwise met being in my in my life as a bond trader. At one point, Chris realized there was a part of New York City he had never visited, the Bronx. He decided he'd walk there. He remembers telling someone about his plan. They said, whatever you do, don't go to Hunts Point. So I had to go to Hunts Point. <laughs> I dreamly discovered in life, both as a physicist and as a Wall Street trader, that if someone tells you not to do something, there's usually a good reason to do it. Like, you know, the conventional wisdom is often wrong. Hunts Point is considered to be one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in New York City. But when Chris visited the South Bronx neighborhood, he saw something more than crime statistics. Chris said he saw an exceptionally strong sense of community. It was a wonderful neighborhood. I was immediately drawn in by the strong sense of community. By And then at, at an artistic level, as a photographer, by, it was just simply a great place to photograph because it faces the South. It has good light. Um, and then, you know, it, it just drew me in. And what became kind of these weekend walks ended up being this project where ultimately I, I quit my job and spent Three and a half years, I think, or four years, um, depending on how the time frame, in a, one neighborhood in particular, the, the poorest neighborhood in New York called Hunts Point um, in the Bronx, with a um, collection of, I mean, to use a derogatory term because there's no other terms, of homeless addicts um, who lived in cars or lived in abandoned buildings and lived under bridges um, and spent their time um, making their money by either being a prostitute or or stealing things, or begging, um, and use that money to uh, to buy heroin. I got to know people, you know, very well. I helped bury some. I helped, you know, I would visit some in prison. I would visit in jails, and I would, you know, <laughs> visit some in detox, taking detox. And they became my the community that that taught me for three and a half years. Chris isn't romantic about the people he spent time with in Hunts Point. But he did find that they valued things like place and family and faith well ahead of resume building or career. Being material is very much an elitist view of the world because one of the things we're all gifted at birth is these values and these meanings that don't require resume to have, like family, like place, and like faith. You know, you don't, you don't need a resume to enter the church. You don't need a resume <laughs> to, to find, you know, beauty in your local community or to be a member of your family. I had come to these views of mine 
that this whole experience had taught me. And I kind of wanted to see if that was true of, you know, to, to use a mathematical term, was that translationally invariant? Was it true in Bridgeport, Connecticut? Was it true in, you know, um, in New Hope, Iowa? Was it true in Prestonburg, um, you know, Kentucky? So Chris took to the road. Over the next four years, he put 400,000 miles on his car. Visiting places that people would tell me not to go to, you know, visiting as much of the United States as I can, the parts that I call back of America that are not in the news in any other way other than negative, um, towns that have lost their industry, um, inner cities that have never had industry, all sorts of places. That's how Chris ended up in that McDonald's in East L.A., talking with the young woman he had seen there before. I told her I was from New York City, and she said she would love to go there. Um, and, you know, I said, well, you know, you're college age. And she's like, well, you know, I, I'm going to college here at East L.A. Community College. She told Chris she needed to stay in East L.A. because she was her mother's translator. Her mother was a Mexican immigrant. She relied on her daughter to navigate life in the United States. She was making a decision that I think we as a broader culture should applaud. She was staying there for her family. And I've met other other kids who are doing similar things, who, you know, a child of um, somebody who, whose parents have gone through addiction are now in recovery. The child wants to be there to keep the parents, you know, to keep the parents stable. This young woman was part of Back Row America. Her decision to prioritize her family over material success, Chris says, was noble. But he said the decision would be scorned by a lot of people in Front Row America. I think... You know, we, we kind of look at people's decisions in what I would call a resume arms race. Everybody has to be building a resume in that process, which is a very narrow way of thinking about success. It's all about getting credentials so you can make more money. It's a very, very material definition of success. The front row has created this, what I call faux meritocracy, where the success is easy to have as, you know, um, because all you need to do is do the following 12 things. But a lot of people don't necessarily want to do that. They don't. They can't necessarily do that for a variety of reasons. But the, the flip side of this you know, meritocracy that we have, where we claim that you know anybody can just, with the right education, make it make it to the top, uh, make it to the front row, is that the impl- implication is that if you didn't make it, it's your fault. The Im- implication is you're dumb, you know, uh, or that you're lazy. Um, or that you just don't have what it takes. And that's very almost like, you know, it's almost an intellectual colonialism. This can lead to feelings of humiliation in back row America. In academic terms, I think most people understand that if you're disenfranchised, if you're kind of in the out group, you know, if you're viewed as profane in your whole living, both what you believe in is mocked, thought of as lesser, and that's humiliating. You're, you're kind of seen as this kind of secondary citizen. People know when they're being laughed at. And people, you know, the front row isn't directly laughing at people. I mean, sometimes they do. But there's this really sense of, again, when they view them, it, it's often viewed as someone who is a wounded, a wounded person to be pitied and helped, as opposed to a person to be listened to. Chris spent nearly eight years getting to know the faces and voices of Back Row America. In those eight years, he developed friendships and a new perspective on American society. He shares this perspective in his book, Dignity, 
Seeking Respect in Backrow America, which he published in 2019. In, in, in very rare instances, almost everybody who reads this book is going to have more privilege than the people in the book. Chris told us he hopes the people who read his book will walk away with a more merciful view of people in the back row. You know, it's the old phrase, you know, before you judge somebody, walk a mile in their shoes. I, I, I pray that that message, <laughs> you know, gets into people and that they, they can see that they themselves probably have a lot better than they realize. And before you judge somebody, again, know what they've gone through. I think it, it, it's to treat people, everybody you meet with respect, and again, not pity them. You know, I think there's this there's this sense that everybody, you know, to look to look at people who are who are in the back row as as people who need to be um, saved or, or changed, um, and, and maybe the best thing to do is just listen to them and, and give them, again, the title of my book, give them the dignity of actually treating them like a like a, an, an, an equal. You can find more information about Chris's book in the show notes for this episode. We also published our entire conversation with Chris as a bonus episode. Look for it. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks to the Archdiocese of St. Louis for giving us permission to use the audio of St. John Paul II's speeches in our first segment. Special thanks to Chris Arnaud, and special thanks to you for listening. God bless you.